Well, uh, it's been a few weeks now since I've been preaching here, but um, we return to that series we've been doing on public worship and the elements of it. And we come today to singing God's praises, singing God's praises. And when we come to the whole question of song and of music in, in worship, we perhaps come to something which has been possibly more divisive than anything else. In, certainly in evangelical churches over the last few generations, but not just in the last few generations. If you look back over the whole history of the church, you'll find great divisions uh, on this topic. Perhaps also if we think about this element of our worship in our current culture, or perhaps in every culture, uh, it provides a canvas on which various Elements and priorities of the world that we live in project themselves. And we live in a very commercialized world, don't we? We live in a world which uh, is not just going for self-autonomy and, and chasing our own values, but in a world which is hyper-driven by the market that encourages that, or at least likes to make us think we're choosing our own values even if in the end we're really just choosing the values of those that are advertising and selling us stuff. Nevertheless, if we think about that whole aspect of the world that we live in, it's hard to think of of any other element in what we do publicly as Christians that's been more influenced by that than by our singing and by our sung praise as God's people. And so I think it's really important, isn't it, when we think about how this has been often divisive, how we find the various values of our culture around us as well, it's really important to return to God's word and read it in the light of what the church has held to and practiced over many centuries. So we hold those things together and come and see where the sung praise of God can be discerned as a thread that runs through the story of the Bible and then what it means for us as those who have been redeemed by Christ are joined to Christ, what it means for us then to engage in the praise of God in our songs. So if you look on the the outline sheet that I've given you there, you'll see there that I've talked about God's praise extends from creation through to the new creation. We have that, we have the beautiful account, don't we, of the creation of the world in Genesis chapter 1. And we know it was by God's word, don't we? It was by God's word through the spirit hovering over the waters. But we find other parts of scripture that also talk about God's creation. And you'll find there when God finally responds in the book of Job, And he talks about, where were you when I lay the foundations of the world? We have this striking phrase, this striking statement in Job 38, 7. Obviously, it's very poetic, but it's still suggestive, isn't it? Where were you when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Sort of think of a, there's a sense of, you know, we go out in the morning, don't we? 
And I remember there was a whole lot of trees at this train station that I used to catch a train from near my parents' house when I was a student. And the morning chorus was deafening that came from those trees every morning. Well, here, in a sense, we have the morning chorus, the morning of the world and its great chorus. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of the Lord. Day utters speech today. And their line goes forth over all the earth. And then as we look forward to to God's redemption, in Isaiah 55, verse 12, you shall go out with joy and be led out with peace. The mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. And all the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Now this is an idea you find not just in the Bible, but in other ancient places too, in ancient philosophy and so on, that there was a harmony to the world. That there was a fittingness to the world. The ancient Greeks used to think about that as like a musical harmony. Together, fitting together. Now, I'm not saying that that's what these verses are saying, but nevertheless, the Bible itself uses the language of song to speak about the the fittingness of God's creation, the goodness of God's creation, and that he is the maker of it. And the fact that we find order in it is reflective of song itself. So we need to remember that before we come to the fact that we praise God for what he's done for us in Jesus Christ, we need to see right at the beginning, before there was the fall, before we fell into sin, that our God, as he created the world, he loved the song of praise. And the whole creation returns in praise to him. So it's no accident then right from the very beginning, that song be part of what we do as believers in our worship. But we see that focused all the more carefully, don't we, as we think of God's great plan of redemption as it unfolds through the Bible. Think there of the great act of salvation, the great redemptive act of the Old Testament, when God took his people out of slavery, out of Egypt, into the promised land. And all the armies of Pharaoh were overwhelmed, weren't they, in the floods of the Red Sea. And then you have a great song by Moses in response. And then Miriam leads out the women of Israel and they dance and they sing and they sing, don't they? Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and its rider he has thrown into the sea. It's striking, isn't it, that when we, if God is the God who, to whom all sung praise must return, and then he finds his people trapped and enslaved, and then he rescues them. And so naturally, a song of thanksgiving returns to him, doesn't it? For now we see the great creator doing his even greater work of redemption. Of salvation. And it is natural then, and it is ordained by God Himself, that His people add that song of praise to the song of creation.
Isn't it beautifully expressed in Psalm 40 that we read out earlier? You know, there we were, stuck in the miry clay. And what has God done? He has taken us out of that miry clay and he set our feet on the rock. And we think of what that means in the whole Bible, the rock of our salvation. There we are, by God's grace, set on his rock. And what does the psalmist say? He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it and fear and will trust in the Lord. And when the psalmist says new there, he doesn't mean that he's only singing something that is is on the recently added list on Apple Music. He's not talking about something novel. He's talking about something renewed, firm, incorruptible, unfading, established. Not the old which withers away, but the new that goes on into eternity. He's put a new song in my mouth and we should rejoice to sing Psalm 40 alongside all the things inspired by it. For we have been put on the rock of salvation. And and notice there, there's an evangelistic note in that too. As we sing, as as we testify to all of God's saving acts for us, many will see and fear and put their trust in the Lord. You don't have to wait till Pentecost for evangelism. The psalmist is doing it. He's rejoicing in God and it flows out to others. And we see that in the psalms as a whole. We see that in the psalms as a whole. We've had a couple of these songs. I've talked about the song of Moses and Miriam. Talked about the creation of the world. But then as we come to the time of David, we have this Massive explosion of song, don't we? With the Psalter. And then following on from David, in the generations that follow, more psalms are added to it. Here we have perhaps the great preeminent pointer to Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. For all his sins, David is the the great king, isn't he? And shapes out for us God's greatest king. Great David's greater son. And David sings. And as he sings, he sings as the messianic king pointing to the great Messiah to come. And so all the promises of God and all the saving acts of God from Abraham and Moses onwards become focused now, don't they? And all of those promises become focused on a particular line, the line of David and Zion and the songs of Zion. And even the temple sacrifices that existed for generations before David Now David's songs are joined to them and as people offer up their sacrifices, they sing the Psalms of David. And then with great orchestras and choirs. And then when the temple is destroyed and they go into exiles, they don't have the choirs anymore, they don't have the orchestras anymore, they just got the simple songs of the synagogue, but it's still the Psalms. It's still the Psalms that they sing. 
And it's interesting, isn't it? When Mary comes and God gives this amazing gift to Mary that she would be the mother of our Lord. And we think of the song that we just sang from Mary or we just had read. Every line can be found in the Psalms. Every line sums up all of that praise of the Psalter. And it's as though we have right throughout that, with the Psalms in the Old Testament, right through the the generations of the people of God on into our own time, it's as though we have a vessel which contains all the bountiful riches of the kingdom of God in Christ. Every phase of it, every facet of it, celebrated in those Psalms. And that charts out for us what our praise must be as we trust in great David's greater son. But it doesn't finish there, does it? We have hints in Psalm 98, in Psalm 51, of the world rejoicing as the Lord comes again. When Christ returns. Think of Psalm 24 that we sang at the beginning of this service. It's as though Christ now ascended, reigns in glory, and they're still singing, aren't they? And in recent times, with Douglas Milne, we've been looking, haven't we, at Revelation 4 and 5. And I don't want to talk too much of them because I don't want to steal Douglas's thunder because he wants to finish this. But we see there that God's people continue to share in the great chorus of heaven. The great chorus of heaven. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive honour and riches and wisdom and strength and honour and glory and blessing. That's the song not just of several or representatives in heaven, it says they're all creation, all the new creation, all creatures, both angelic and redeemed, all creatures join in that song. Worthy is the Lamb. Notice there it's remembering the trials of Jesus in this current evil age, but now transforming them into glory. Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive all power and riches, honour and wisdom. That is our great end. And that's why it is so important for us to study sung praise now, to take it seriously. Because if we're to follow the logic of this through, this is the one thing in the public worship that we know now that we will still be doing in the new heavens and the new earth. I don't think we'll be celebrating the Lord's Supper anymore because we'll be having the marriage banquet of the Lamb. No one will need to be baptised anymore. We will know all things and we will go on deeper and deeper but we will still be singing and we will still be thanking God in song and the choir of the numberless redeemed will be breathtaking. That is why we need to take it seriously now 
We must take it seriously now. We've talked all the way through this series that we're actually engaging in spiritual realities when we come together in worship. Heavenly realities. And that applies to our song as well. But a couple of things we need to think about as we think about this great survey. Think here that it starts with God's purposes. God creates. God redeems. God transforms. God glorifies. And at each point, it's punctuated by our response to him. It starts with God. There's a view of 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 worship and praise that is current in many places today where it's about us bringing God down into our presence or us revving ourselves up so that something spiritual happens. But that's not what we have in this survey, is it? God puts our feet on the rock. God creates a world and brings the stars into being. God gives his promises. Christ is exalted and we return in song. And that's the way it should be, shouldn't it? And that's what we seek to do in our order of service as well. The songs are there all the way through. And they are there as response. It's actually God who brings us to himself. We don't need to pray him into this presence. We don't need to sing him into this hall. God calls us by his word and spirit. By his will, he drags us to himself. And makes us willing. Like holy beauties in morn's womb, as it says in Psalm 110. And then we respond in song. And the the great fundamental accent is corporate joining in this song as well. Yes, of course, David is an individual. Mary is an individual. Miriam is an individual, yes. But their songs swiftly become everyone's songs. And the chorus of heaven doesn't have celebrities in it. It's all God's redeemed creation singing together. And it has its own logic, this song, its own priorities, its own agenda, the song praise of God all the way through the Bible. It's not there to serve our agendas or for something in which we simply input various pragmatic concerns we might have. Now, I'm not saying that any particular style is the only way, but I'm saying this is the great discerning principle we need to use. That we're not simply doing our song because that's the easy entryway into the church. Or that is the way that makes people feel comfortable. The sung praise of God is a solemn spiritual business. We are joining with Christ's church in all ages before us and those already justified and glorified in heaven and those that will come after us. This is not something which we do simply because of the concerns of our culture or our time or our moment. There is a great reality in what we are doing here together. And that brings me then to point C in your handout there too. 
What joins us to all of this? Well, it's Christ himself. It's Christ himself in our sung praise. We're not just looking back. We're not just looking forward. But when we sing God's praises, it is the word of Christ dwelling richly in us. We have that famous verse, don't we, in Colossians 3.16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Now, there's a number of things we need to note about this verse. It's not just talking about public worship, is it? It could well be talking about singing in all sorts of occasions, in families and in groups as well. That's part of what we see here. Also, we mustn't too quickly rush to conclusions about what psalms and hymns and spiritual songs mean. We're not to fill them with contemporary ideas of those different things. So, you know, the psalms are from the psalm book and the hymns are from the old hymn book and the spiritual songs are the things you have up on the projector. That's not what it's talking about, obviously, here. It could well, there's been a very solid case made, I'm not entirely convinced by it, but there's a solid case made that all three terms are actually referring to the psalms themselves. And even if they're going beyond the psalms, the psalms still lie as at the heart of them, the kernel of them, and shape the ones which join them, like Mary's song. But I want us to look at that first part there. The word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. And then he goes on to sung, to songs. The word of Christ dwell in you richly. Is that simply saying we've got the Bible and we want to, we want to uh, read the Bible and we want it to be in our memories and in our hearts and in our lives? Well, yes, that's all true, but I think it's saying more than that. Because you look at the start of Colossians 3. Colossians 3, verses 1 to 4. I've got it there for you on your sheet. If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is up there. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then you also will appear with him. In glory. So when we take God's word and we sing it, either straight or inspired from it, we are actually sharing in that heavenly life where your true life is, if you believe in Jesus. Your true life is founded in heaven, in Christ Himself. He's joined you by His Spirit. So When we sing God's praises from his word, we are engaged in something beyond our comprehension in a sense. It is a a mark, it is an expression of our union with Christ himself. Christ, in a sense, is leading us in song. Christ is driving his word deep in our hearts through song. And so it's not merely then, is it, whether a song moves us emotionally. Our emotions are important. It's not merely whether it moves us emotionally. 
or whether it's something we feel comfortable with. In fact, in some ways, the sung praise of God should make us deeply uncomfortable because Jesus, in all his grace, yes, but his holiness is united to us and he doesn't want to leave us where we are. He's driving us onward and forward. He's preparing us. In some ways, he's like a strict choral master who is saying, that's not good enough. You will be joining the choruses of heaven one day. And I want you to tune your hearts to my song. Christ is in us and his word then directs our songs. Not our predilections and our preferences, but his word. His spirit transforms us in that sung praise. And that's why we need to broaden the topics that we sing about. There's a number of times I've been asked to preach at a church over in the western suburbs, very godly church, excellent minister who really preaches very well. The service of worship is not one I'm particularly used to, but it's great to be with God's people there. And it's all choruses, and that's fine. In a sense, the form was not concerning me, but what is interesting about each of the choruses that we sung in the service was exactly the same. It was essentially various um, variations on we praise you, Lord, hallelujah. We praise, praise, hallelujah. Some of them were very beautiful. Some of, them, and they, some of them were easier to sing, some were not. But what struck me was that if you, even if you were to stand with that, choral, that chorus form, why is it that you could not have a chorus that confessed your sins? A chorus that praised God for justification. A chorus that talked about heaven. Some, some of them did touch on these things. But that there is actually an expansive view of all that is contained in our life in Christ's kingdom here below. And where do we find that most of all? I'm going to sound like a broken record here, but we find it in the Psalms, don't we? As Carl Truman once famously said, What's a sad Christian got to sing? You only find it in the Psalms so often, isn't it? You know, there's the Psalm. Where are the... We were singing in assembly, and we're going to sing it in this service as well. We were singing in assembly a week or two ago, Psalm 2. It's a terrifying Psalm. I felt scared singing it with all my brothers in the, in the assembly, thinking about the implications of this Psalm. You'll see as we sing it later. That is part of our sung praise. Psalm 88, which has not a single positive thing in it, except that it is turned to God. It is the psalm for those in the grips of depression. And there is that in God's hymn book. And psalms about every possible element of struggle against God's enemies and Dealing with the lack of assurance. Dealing with sin. And praising God for all his mercies to us. See, God's word, and and it's the same with the songs that we find in the New Testament as well. God's word is there to transform us and to meet us, yes, but then to bring us in. And to instruct us in wisdom. 
for every phase of the Christian's life. It's not just about making you feel good, although it does do that as well, but of shaping you and reshaping you in the image of the Lord Jesus. And it's his spirit doing that, transforming us in our sung praise. So as we close then, let us just think for a moment about that. How do we bring our hearts to our worship, especially our sung praise? Are we simply relieved? And it is a genuinely it is a genuine relief, isn't it, after a long sermon to stand up and stretch your legs and sing? Or to be able to vary what we do? Is it simply because we enjoy it, which is fine? It is good to enjoy the praise of God. Or are we seeing that Christ himself is in the midst of us, preparing us for himself, receiving our praises, and even as he receives our praises, giving giving us this amazing blessing of shaping us to himself, transforming us. Is that that how we sing to our God? As it says here in Colossians, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Taking this up, not just as a break, not just as another thing that we do in the hymn reading sandwich before the sermon, but fitting ourselves for the great choir of heaven and knowing that there will be no corruption No faltering, no lessening of song, even as we press on into the everlasting ages of ages to come. And may that be our song. And may we grace our gatherings with song. May it be something we delight to do together, not just on Sunday mornings, but in our Bible studies in when we gather as families, in our private praises as well. I used to always hear my dad on every Sunday morning, he always made sure the doors were open because I think he was trying to wake us all up. But he, was, he would sing psalms to himself every Sunday morning and they would get slowly louder and louder and louder the longer we were lying in bed. But you see, it's something for individuals to do as well. And may we always... Sing with grace in our hearts to the Lord. Well, let's pray. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us in creation and in redemption. And as we look forward to the new creation, we pray that you would tune our hearts to sing your praise, that we would rejoice um, in this great blessing that you have given to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.